This is Monsteropolis, a show about legends, anomalies, monsters. Thanks for tuning in. Um, welcome back. I am Andy Matsky, and I am your host. Uh, I was once behind the camera, but now I am in front of the camera. Um, I'm joined, as always, by my father and co-host, Mark Matsky. It is a pleasure and an honor. I'm glad that we've pulled you out from behind the camera. It was reluctant at first, and um, it was out of necessity, but now I like it, and now I I kind of miss it when I'm not in Aww, front of the camera. Really? I hate editing it, though. It is <laughs> always the worst part of my week. Recording a little inside baseball. Recording a podcast these days, not really nervous about. I used to be. Now, I don't care. Partially because I edit them, and I know anything I say that I don't like, I can just all of a sudden, and it's like a hard <laughs> cut to like something else. Yeah. I just, if I go, I don't like how I said that, it's just... Click, click, and it's gone. It never happened. But editing them is the worst. I just, I can't stand it. It's helpful when, like, you and Heather are on an episode and you guys talk a lot. But then I just give my two cents, and I don't like it. But it's fun when, like, <laughs> Zach's there, and I'm interacting with Zach. Yeah. And, like, then you cut to, like, what he zooms in on me for, and I do like that. Like, on the last, ep- no, two episodes ago, where I'm just, like, counting, and he caught that, and then it, like, yeah. pans over. I like that a lot, because it's, like, another perspective on me. But if it's just this, and it's me sitting there, I'm, I literally take the headphones off. Yes. And if it's a two-camera thing, I can just see who's talking. <laughs> And I just add it to that. I don't listen. I'll have to listen for these because there's not another camera I can cut to. Yeah. But like, you know, okay. I, I, this is giving me this vision. Okay. Stick with me on this. It's, it's you, me and Heather, let's yeah. say, and you edit the, that podcast in such a way that you're on it, but you never say anything. It just like cuts to yeah. you. And you're sitting there, and then the next cut is somebody else talking. It's clearly like I'm about to say something, or I've just said something. Exactly. (laughs) You got it. It's what it would be like if I actually listened to it. But no, like I, I, I listen to make sure the audio is synced up. I make sure that's synced up to this. Mm -hmm. I sort of make sure it sounds okay. Like the spoilers, but you know, previous episodes there were major sound issues that I sort of took care of. Um, Did I say spoilers? You did say spoilers. I'm sorry, but like inside baseball, so, right? They were made in the future documentary yeah. that shows hey, you doing all of that. I hate to break it that. to you guys, but there we don't do this professionally very well. So in post, I have to do a lot sometimes, and that was the case. But it's fine. It's fine. Even saying that, though, it's it's really interesting to see how over time podcasting has gone from a laptop and a Yeti microphone and but two yeah, I, guys. Now it's something completely I up, different. I sync up the ep- episodes, and then when I'm when I'm editing them and I'm on it, I go take <laughs> off the headphones, <laughs> and I just do it as quickly as possible, and I welcome any distraction to like get me away from it because I don't like I like wow I just don't like myself. It's me. It's not you. It's not Heather. It's not Seth. It's not Zach. It's me. Wow. I, just, I don't like it. But if you do, thank you. It means a lot. It's quite an it, exercise. When you say for that, you. like I do good, and that you enjoy it, or you mention a joke I did in the comments, it like it's great. And then the bad comments, I just laugh at. They, yeah, they also are funny because at least you're listening to me, which is something I can't even do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the dweeb and cray. Yeah. Hey, whoever <laughs> left that comment, can you clarify? This yeah. is going to be for the squad, so you're not a squad member. Right. But can you clarify, please, what you meant? I'm going to, yeah. you know what? I'm going to put that comment up. Like, what does it mean? Okay, I get on the dweeb and gray. That's fine. I, I welcome that. But like. It seems to me like mean? it's it's an, like somebody pushing autofill <laughs> for about 10 different words. Just like, hey, I want to insult this guy, but I don't, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> Help me out, iPhone. No, right. <laughs> Is that what you did? <laughs> Also, the commenters who say I look, or you look younger than me, I don't like those. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like those. I, they don't bother me. I'm going to let you much. in on a little secret too, uh, squad members. I like pretty much every comment that's left on these videos because I have this weird theory that that like boosts us up in algorithm because that's like interaction in the comments, mm-hmm. including some hate, like some dislike comments. I'll like them if they're real bad. I don't. <laughs> but I didn't like the one that said that I looked older or like implied that I looked older. No, it said it pretty hair. directly. 
<laughs> I don't. That's what else can I do? Andy's um, lived a harder life than I have. It's I been think real is what stressful. It, yeah. The past two two years. <laughs> oh my. Rescue's carefree. Um, yeah. So this episode, so this episode of Monstropolis is all about the late great Rene de Hinden. Um, my favorite of you know, your classic Bigfoot researchers, pretty much purely based off his attitude yes. the whole, yes. towards the whole thing, which I'd like to think I share a little bit of that, um, which is <laughs> that, which would one would characterize as a, a healthy dose of skepticism that then quickly overflows into sort of, you know, being a little downtrodden. But I think he might have, he might be a little bit more a believer than me. But I sort of, I don't know if you can tell, listener, but when it comes down to it, when it boils down to it, you probably would notice this more so from Beyond the Trails and things I'm involved with more than this show, other things. But I'm not one to say that everything is Bigfoot or even anywhere close in my you know, journey through all this. I'm a real big fan of the stories. And I think that's where my, the stories and the personal effects on of these sightings Um I think that's why I fit so well in with STM. And I think STM sort of fostered that side of my interest where it's, you know, how these stories have affected people and places is what's fascinating to me. Um, That's what was fascinating to me until I went to the nest site. (laughs) And then I went, oh, I want to see what made these. Yes. Um, But uh, all that was to say that I'd like to think I'm a little bit like Dehinden. I don't know if I actually am. Mm-hmm. I think I am towards Seth. Anytime Seth brings something up, I'm the to hind into his <laughs> crants, I guess. I'm thinking yeah. of the, the clip from oh, yeah. Journey Towards Squatchdom. I think that's the one where she's just yelling at the at Krantz. The Hinden's just yelling at Krantz that like you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I kind of do that to Seth sometimes. <laughs> He'll be like listen to this knock we got or like look at this speck that we recorded while filming out in the woods in Minerva and I'll be like <laughs> what are you talking about yeah um a little only to him, him. a little yeah. comes out at that yeah, point yeah only to him only to people I'm close with yeah as somebody who knows you well I think <laughs> you you certainly share that the Hinden-esque sort of don't just swallow everything whole and accept it all as like equally valid or true. Yeah. Cause that's certainly as you look through, especially the book that we both examined for today. Both it up. Uh, okay. Sasquatch Bigfoot by Don Hunter and Renee DeHinden. Uh, Let's what, do like clickbait faces. You know, I've been wanting to mess with doing the thumbnail as us, and I might do that. Oh, really? One. That'll clarify like if it's what show. But see, and what comes through is that. One of DeHinden's big things was trying to determine the believability of the witness. Like he would, and, and if he like got a whiff of the idea that you were trying to prank him or hoax him, he would be pretty merciless then from that point out in how he described both you and your viewpoints. And I see a little, a little DeHinden-esque quality in you in that same regard. But what's really interesting to me about DeHinden is, you know, his whole, the arc of his life is just fascinating and how quickly then, once he got interested in the subject of Sasquatch, how he became sort of a point person for that in the squatchiest of places, British Columbia, like out of everybody there, he became very quickly known as the go-to guy for a report you would call, come out and sort of take a look. So just a great subject today. I'm excited to get mm-hmm. into Renee DeHinden's retrospective. Yeah, I think we might undermine how important he is, but like in, in Napier's book here, there are, we're going to wait it out. Okay. Also the siren. And the siren. <laughs> hey, squad members. Um, how you guys doing? I hope you're doing well. Um, thank you for being squad members. I'm trying to give you more content. Because I feel like it'd be nice for you. Because yeah. I care. Because I realize that when I like 
release two identical versions of an episode. That's not really nice to you guys. I did that like two weeks ago now. Should we do some real quick book things for Squad? I like this one. <laughs> I like this one. I like this one a lot. I like this one. Like this one's really good. Like, Why do you good. like it as because you do? Because it has lots of pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's the pictures it has are really cool. Like, would you look at that? And then it has like, that's the back. And it has cool graphs. And it has printed in it some like government the government thing on Washington Bigfoot and it's that's just cool. That's burn, right? Yeah, this is Peter. Yeah. For <laughs> listeners, because we do have people who just listen to the show. Um <laughs> this is The Search for Bigfoot, Monster Myth or Man by Peter Byrne, founder of the International Wildlife Conservation Society. Really? Wow. I'll be darned. You didn't know he had it like that, huh? I'll be darned. I didn't know. A reward of one thousand will be paid. For information leading to find to a find by researchers at the center. Wow. Okay. It's so a I real thing. All the sirens and pol- police and trains and all that are gone. What was I saying? I like this book. Oh, and in this book, I think we undermine that um, De Hinden was sort of at the forefront of all this. I think we we have him as one of the four horsemen, but he really was at a lot of places. And I'm sure oh, yeah. you have. You have the notes. You did the research. I have the notes, and you're exactly right. When you go through a survey of his life, what you quickly see is that when you name one of the, like, touchstone cases of the late 50s and through the 60s, there is, like, a 95% chance that Rene DeHinden was there, like, within a day of the things transpiring. It's it's really incredible when you stop and look at that. Um, so do you, how do you want to go about this? Because I have really two streams of information. On one hand, I have reports that DeHinden investigated or took that really stood out to me as I went through the book this time. And I'm leaving out Bauman, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt, Thing. Why? It's such a good story yeah. that we've all heard a million <laughs> times. Yeah. So I'm leaving out Bauman. I'm, I'm leaving out William Rowe. <laughs> I'm leaving out Albert Osman, even though they, you know, he was instrumental in taking both of those cases. There are more in here that are, I think, equally interesting. And I don't recall seeing them widely in other books. They're not the same, you know, six or seven. Some of them are, but the thing that's important to note is that they're in DeHinden's book because he took the case. <laughs> you know, he did the initial report. Let's do that. So, yeah. Okay. Should we do some of those cases to start Let's off? Right okay. Now. All right. So the first one is uh, the Clayton Mack sighting. Uh, one of the most best known and respected grizzly bear hunters and big game guides in British Columbia is Clayton Mack, a Bella Coola Indian from Anaheim Lake in north-central British Columbia. DeHinden, accompanied by John Green, then a newspaperman and partner in the Sasquatch hunt, talked with Clayton Mack shortly after the guide had seen unusual tracks during the winter of 1967. Mack said they were those of a biped, and he dismissed any possibility of them being a bear. He stated categorically that no bear moves about on two feet for any significant distance. He goes on to describe the tracks, but that's not the only thing uh, that Clayton Mack reported were tracks, although the fact he's a grizzly tracker makes it pretty compelling that this it's not what was being seen. Discussion then took a new tack when the guide decided to elaborate on the Sasquatch and told of two personal experiences that until then he had related to no one. And this is a quote. I was at the head of Gardner's Canal and we saw those tracks, and that's the same place where the thing came to the cabin that night. There was a lawyer from Hollywood and a doctor from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, up here for bear. There was the three of us in the cabin about two o'clock in the morning when the thing yelled right at the window. It yelled like making a sharp, harsh exhalation. Harg! The lawyer jumped off the bed and shouted, What's that? And typical Hollywood lawyer. Yeah. 
I said, well, we've been talking about Sasquatches, and I think that's one. Then it yelled down on the beach. The next thing up on the hill just kept on going. Then daylight came, and we went out bear hunting. We came back, and the float plane was supposed to pick us up, so we waited on the beach. The lawyer said, I'm going to imitate that son of a gun, and he did, and that son of a gun answered just the same noise it had made at the window. Then Clayton Mack reached further back into his past and told of the time he saw a Sasquatch on the tidal flats. He was heading for nearby Quatna Inlet in his small boat sometime during the early 1940s. I saw this thing walking on the beach, a light brown color, standing about eight or nine feet tall. Thought it was a big bear, but he didn't go down on four legs. I was nosing right towards him, but I was about 400 yards away, so I didn't get a good look at his face. I kept wondering because he didn't go down on his four legs. He was right on the edge of the water. He stood up straight and looked at me, then turned and walked up to the timber. Then halfway up to the driftwood logs, he stopped and turned and looked at me, twisting his head round. i never seen a grizzly bear on his hind feet stand and twist round with just its head. They always turn the whole body, and they go down on four feet to do it. Then he went on and got to the logs and walked on top of them. He got to the timber's second growth. It looked as though he just reached out and spread the trees apart as he walked through them, young spruce and hemlock trees. Max said that as a child he frequently heard stories from the older people about the Sasquatch, but had never taken them very seriously. But now I've been thinking, I believe it, he concluded. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, do you think that uh, Tidal Flats has, is also a band and that they'd have a song called Life is a Float Plane? <laughs> I think so. I, I love their song. Life is a float plane. I sincerely hope so. I um, hope that's true. I really like uh, the thing I like about that story is um, that it, it, they're not willing. The, the first group of people aren't really willing participants in what's going on. Mm-hmm. Sort of stuck in a cabin. Oh yeah, hearing these things screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, I also the precedent for. Uh, Known bear behavior versus this thing isn't acting in that way is once again seen. And I think that's interesting by people who know what they're talking about, mm-hmm. have seen bear. Yeah. Imagine going bear hunting and then you run into a Bigfoot. It'd be so cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to hunt a bear. I just want to see a bear. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that before. I think I mentioned that. Last. I want to see a bear, guys, from far away. Right. But still. Yeah. Not in a zoo. I want to see a bear. That'd be so cool. Yeah, it's it's so weird to think about because I think like in the wild, like Clayton Max sighting, it, I think I'd be more afraid of a bear than I would a Bigfoot just for whatever reason. I'm pretty reason. sure Bigfoot's not going to kill me. Yeah. Like, and if so, what a way to go. But if I see a bear, it might kill mm-hmm. me. That would not be a way to go. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole sort of protocol of things to do to make sure that you don't sneak up on a bear and surprise it. Um, Apparently, bears they, will just, like, run away if they hear you, unless they're, uh, like, yeah. a mother with their cubs. Yeah, that's if, what I've been told. That's right. That's right. And, like, if you're going through known bear country, you're supposed to make as much noise as you can mm-hmm. and just raise a ruckus, and they'll pretty much leave you alone. But then you have... There's various reasons why. You just don't want to be around when... They're like just about ready to go into hibernation because they're in like calorie filling mode. It's wild. Can you tell I just read a book about bears recently? But anyway, I watched um, a YouTube video where a guy had bears as pets. That was cool. Oh, mm-hmm. But he's like always like these aren't your normal pets. Like these aren't house pets. You yeah, gotta be careful. <laughs> right. I'm like I want a bear, <laughs> and I wouldn't do too good against a bear. Yeah, six hundred pound. House pet, yeah, it's not going to work cool. too well. Can we talk about bears for the rest <laughs> of the episode? Would you be fine with that? Bear, fine bears with that. what? Yeah, bear what? Podcast. Bears. bears. Coming fall 23. Um, Yeah, that's in British Columbia. I, yeah. I really want to get up there. Mm-hmm. I think we mentioned that when the last time it was just the two of us, but like places we want to go, British Columbia would be so cool. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's the next place now for me is 
BC. And whoa, you know, with regard to Rene de Hinden, I mean, he is, that's his stomping grounds. Like from the time he comes over to Canada, he works briefly in Calgary, but then hears from his boss that British Columbia is the place to be for Bigfoot. It's like, what is that? And he finds out pretty much the rest of his life then is British Columbia. That's the spot for him. Um, what should we do next? Do you want? Oh, yes. Let's do. So while we're let's talking do. about British Columbia and Bigfoot um, and, and Rene de Hinden, uh, he published in this is copyright 1986. And this is a reprint. Of it, but um, he published this um, little pamphlet that I'm hoping is all in frame. That is British Columbia land of the Sasquatch that um, I feel like I should just read. It has I, these yes. cute cartoons. And, yeah, for sure. So the truth about the Sasquatch as far back as 1884, the Sasquatch wild men, hairy and tall have been seen, talked about, laughed and written about Sasquatch seen have been from 500 to a thousand pounds, seven to nine feet tall, wide jaws, narrow forehead, powerful shoulders, and covered with brown hair. The Sasquatch has been a seemingly harmless bystander. In the 75 years, the only reports of human encounters... Yep. And the only reports of human encounters has been the kit... Wait, what? Hey. Yes. Yes. Been a seemingly. Yep, that's right. I'm reading it right. Has right? been a seemingly. Has been a seemingly. Yes. The Sasquatch <laughs> has been a seemingly harmless bystander in the 75 years. The only reports of human encounter have been the kidnapping of an Indian maid and a prospector. Sasquatch footprints have been discovered repeatedly. The tracks have been up to 16 inches long and eight inches wide, pressed two to three inches into the ground with a stride of five to seven feet. Although, although, although the Harrison Hot Springs Lake area is the traditional home of the Sasquatch, reports have come from many parts of British Columbia. The hairy giants have paid them a visit. And then there's this awesome little map. It's great. I love this. I love this so much. Renee Hinden, folks. So, do you have another little, another little report? Yes, I do. I do indeed. Shortly after being introduced to Clayton Mack, uh, Green and DeHinden talked to a man named Harry Squinnis, who had told of a happening while he camped at Goose Point near Anaheim Lake in 1963. Squinnis was getting ready for sleep. And the tent flap was open from the outside, and he saw what he described as a, quote, monkey face all covered with hair with eyes like a man, unquote. Squinnis grabbed for a flashlight, but it wasn't working. He then ran outside, tossed some gasoline on the embers of his campfire. In the light that flared up, he saw four man-ape-like creatures lying down as though hiding on the edge of his camp area about 14 feet from his tent. As the flame rose, the four jumped up and walked away into the darkness, walking like men. Squinnis called to them, Hey, what are you doing out here? Hey, come back. The creatures went off silently. Squinnis checked for footprints, but the grassy area held nothing. There was, however, the mark of one huge hand on a tree trunk, and this he later showed to Clayton Mack. Whatever the creatures were that Squinnis saw, they scared him. He spent the night sitting up by his campfire, and the next morning he went into town and bought five boxes of shotgun shells. He never saw the intruders again. That was a roller coaster ride of a report. It may seem very mundane, but hey, let's take a second to break this down. He he hears something outside his tent, right? He opens it and sees a monkey face, mm-hmm. but with human, human eyes. eyes. <laughs> monkey face sounds like a, a bad insult. Schoolyard. Hey, monkey face. (laughs) Not nice. That's mind blowing. And then in his mad dash to get out of there, he grabs his can of gasoline, throws it on the fire, 
and then sees four Bigfoots yeah. who were seeking cover very poorly and whose mm. cover is instantly blown. Yes. They were just laying there chilling. Mm-hmm. As if hiding, I, I kind of want to know what that means. Were they like... Probably like hunkered down, trying they to stay were laying down. So were like some like sideways, this yeah, way. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they were creeping up on the tent. Maybe they were. Sort of army crawling. Yeah. And then they realize their, their cover's blown. Yep. And it says they walk away. So yeah. the way I see it is they go... Darn it. They just <laughs> yeah. stand up and like yeah. sort of reluctantly walk away. That's... Like that was going to be fun. But now their fun is spoiled. Yeah. They're kind of disappointed. These Sasquatch mm-hmm. are disappointed. And they get up and walk away. And they're dismayed. And then our Harry Squimus just stays up. Da- occasionally dousing the fire again. And I would imagine to so. keep it going. Yes. Yeah. So it's, I mean, anytime. And then he calls his best buddy from the other story. Yeah, Clayton Mack, like, come on down. That's too cool. Yeah, there's definitely relationships there that exist between some of these characters, I'll call them. I mean, they're real people. But when you start to look at, like, the community, such as it existed then, there's just these strong, self-reliant, characters living up there you know living off the land in many cases and it what's interesting here is that uh, john green was from harrison hot springs uh the hinden was not you know he was from he was born in switzerland i believe and then emigrated to canada became a citizen but he would have there would have been sort of an outsider status to him at least at first but i think his like his outdoorsiness and his capability in the field, he would have earned people's trust pretty quickly. That's what seems to be happening in a lot of these cases where he gets hooked up with these guys who are finally ready to tell their story to somebody. So yeah, four four creatures at mm-hmm. once. That's is that astonishing. the first one plus four, or is that four in total? Do you think? Uh, I I took it to be four in total which is a lot in any, the four, well. It's either four or five, regardless. Yeah. It's a. Yeah, it's four or five. It's, four. it's a whole posse. It is. The British Columbia Bigfoot posse. <laughs> they mastered the art of nonchalance. Mm-hmm. Well, busted. <laughs> Dang it. Walk off into the night. Nah, don't bother answering him. He wouldn't understand us anyway. <laughs> So what do you want to do with DeHinden? Should we get into his life a little yeah. bit at this point? Tell me a little bit about All right. Rene DeHinden. I will. I will. Uh, there is an interview that's quoted here in the book for a Seattle magazine in 1967. He told the reporter when he heard stories of the Sasquatch, and these are his words, something clicked inside me. And looking back, it seemed that maybe I'd been searching all my life for a chance like that a chance to really accomplish something. And if he was being um, as self-revealing as that sounds, that really gives you a sense of a, a man on a mission, and he was that. And I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail about his childhood, but it was rough. He was um, born, his parents were not married, he was not really wanted, uh, his Family left him at a, at an orphanage. He had to. He was gone, sort of shunted off to various foster homes. At a certain point in his childhood, his mom comes back, decides to try and bring him into the home for a little while. Doesn't work out. It's really. It's kind of horrifying. But then he finally um, he gets a taste of life on the farm in this one foster home, and he kind of hates it. But he learns how to work. And so eventually that takes him to, you know, he, he goes to Canada in the 1953, he gets a farm job in Calgary and he meets a man, his name is Wilbur Willock. That was his boss in Calgary and getting to know Willock it was Willock who told him about Sasquatch as an idea and that if you wanted to really see one, the place to go is British Columbia and DeHinden seized on that idea, and that was like the start of his 
white whale chasing after this is like the the focal point of his life. So he moves to British Columbia in the summer of 1956. And um, it just, you know, imagine these things happening. Summer of 1956, he becomes acquainted with John Green. And they get to know one another. At that time, 56, John Green is nothing resembling a Bigfoot, quote unquote, believer. He's heard stories, chalks him up to local legend or, you know, tall tales or whatnot. But that starts a 13-year association with Green that will result in DeHinden occasionally working for John Green at the newspaper. Everything will come to a head at Bossburg and things fall apart at that point. Uh, the relationship wasn't irretrievably damaged, but it was damaged, and they never really had the same closeness after Bossburg for reasons that hopefully we'll have time to get into a little bit. Um, and, and now the question is, how does a, a Swiss Canadian immigrant get thrust into the role of sort of Bigfoot spokesperson? And that happens in 1957 when. British Columbia is celebrating its centennial. Uh, various locations were trying to do little celebrations to like gain attention. And you could appeal to British Columbia for money for your village or whatever it was to have your celebration. And someone on the Harrison Hot Springs City Council, such as it was, thought it'd be a neat idea to do a Sasquatch hunt. That in itself gained like almost international attention. Just the fact that that suggestion was made and they quickly connected the dots from the time that DeHinden arrived in town in 56 to 57. So within a year's time, DeHinden had gained a, a reputation in that community as being the Bigfoot guy. Mm -hmm. And so the council said, if we get this approved, DeHinden is going to lead the hunt. And <laughs> DeHinden was like, I'm in, yeah. you know, now I'm for, you know, it's in the book, uh, Sasquatch Bigfoot. It says this was a blatant publicity stunt for the Harrison hot springs area. And it worked. I mean, they mm -hmm. got all kinds of attention. Yeah. Sadly, the hunt never happened no. because the request for the funding was declined, but Come on, Canada, right. <laughs> this is the last straw. Yeah. <laughs> But the bottom line is that um, that was the one thing that took place that cemented Rene DeHinden as the Sasquatch guy. And from that point forward, any report that came in, if DeHinden was around, you know, he, they were forwarded to him and he would go out and investigate and very meticulously report on what he had found. And I'm sure, you know, John Green helped him with that, having a journalism background as he did. So all that is to say that in October 1958, a man named Jerry Crew finds prints all around his bulldozer and DeHinden is contacted and he makes a beeline for Bluff Creek and is on the ground very early on in that investigation, along with John Green and a lot of those very famous people. Within a year's time, and like more like within months, uh, there is an assembly that is brought together by one Tom Slick, Texas millionaire and devotee of the unexplained. He organizes the Pacific Northwest Expedition. And so you've got names such as Rene DeHinden, John Green, Bob Titmus, and Ivan Marks, believe it or not, who are tasked with and funded in order to go out looking for Bigfoot. Um, long story short, it's like a comedy of errors. Um, DeHinden's patience for foolishness is very short. And so he actually leaves the expedition kind of disgusted. And really, to the degree that the expedition disillusioned him so much that he kind of left the field of investigation for a while, went off and did other things, just earned money. Once in a while would take a report, 
but would sort of examine it maybe from a distance. But he had pretty much, it soured him that much that even at that time, there didn't seem to be any sort of rhyme or reason. There was no plan in place, no systematic way of searching for Bigfoot. Just sort of go out and whatever you think is going to work, hopefully (laughs) that'll bear fruit. Something yanked him back into the field. And that something was in 1967. Word reached Rene DeHinden in August that in Bluff, Key, Bluff Creek, California, there was a, a find of tracks numbering near a thousand, a thousand well defined, very distinguishable tracks were were located. And so he's down there as fast as humanly possible and investigating along with his old chums, you know, and all trying to get to the bottom of things. And, you know, it's not, it's only a couple months later in August of 1967 when one Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin go out and obtain their film. DeHinden is on the scene in Willow Creek one day after that takes place. So he's like immediately there. Mm-hmm. Now, there's this exchange between DeHinden and Roger Patterson that's captured um, in the book uh, that I thought was really interesting. Um, once the film gets processed, Patterson Gimlin film gets processed, uh, Patterson, as he told Renee, didn't know whether he had anything that would stand up because obviously I hadn't seen mm-hmm. the film. Next day, the group viewed the film at the Yakima home of Patterson's brother-in-law. Renee says, I knew what I was going to see. I'd had the thing described often enough, but it still gave me a hell of a shock when I saw it. Your first reaction is, oh, come on, you know, looking for the zipper in the fursuit. But then you start looking at it one thing at a time. They watched it until their eyes blurred firing questions the whole time at Patterson. Finally, with only slight reservations, born no doubt of years of investigating fools and false alarms, they agreed that they had a Sasquatch on film. Patterson's first impulse was to rush off with the film to New York and stun the world of science, at the same time building dreams of making a vast fortune. Rene and Green, however, more familiar with the attitudes they knew he would face, argued against the move. Go to New York, Renee's told them, and they'll laugh you out of town. You'll be considered only a freak with a monster movie. The warning was to prove more accurate than Renee probably knew. Patterson thought exclusively in terms of instant big time. With him, it had to be a million bucks or nothing, Renee said. Between them, though, Renee and Green persuaded Patterson to stay on home ground for the time being. Patterson agreed to take the film up to Vancouver, or at least there was a familiarity with the Sasquatch and where it was conceded that Renee and Green were, were serious researchers. Showings of the film were arranged for scientists and reporters at the University of British Columbia and in a Vancouver hotel. Film was run several times, both straight through and stop frame sequence. And see, just that whole thing, that was a reminder to me of how intimately involved in Patterson-Gimlin in the initial reaction to it, Renee DeHinden was right there, along with John Green and Patterson and Gimlin, too, um, and Patterson's brother-in-law, who comes up later on in some of these stories. But, you know, he was right there and had that initial flush of skepticism, as he says. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then as he looked at it more, it just seemed to him to be the real deal. And later on, I forget where in the book it says this, but you know, this was so important that I, I wrote this down, I thought. And that was the admission on DeHinden's part. He says, emotionally, the Patterson-Gimlin film shattered him. Those are his words. Reason being, somebody had found it before him. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's how deeply that hurt, is that he really, as, it state, as he stated before, this was the goal that his whole life was pushing towards. And to his way of thinking, somebody had beat him to the punch and it just tore him up. So I found, yeah. I don't know, I just, he, he's so, 
I don't know, human in all his reactions mm-hmm. and his ideas here. The thing that's it's crazy that you, you mentioned twice is how quickly he's at these places that we and and occasions that we think of so iconically that um that's that's staggering to me. Mm-hmm. Both with Jerry Crew and with the Patterson Gimlin film, he's there and he's there immediately after these things are happening. Yeah. It's just amazing. And it makes you sort of wonder if there's anything like that going on these days that you're like, that one could be missing out on. Mm -hmm. You're on the forefront of such, you know, important, iconic times. Things that we still look back on. I mean, not even Patterson-Gimlin film, but some of these track finds and some of these sightings. Things we still look back on and wonder, you know, did something actually happen? Mm -hmm. Is this legitimate? That we haven't, you know, disproven it yet. Right. We'll get to things with marks, I'm pretty sure. But yeah. Or thing, things have been proven with marks, but there's still things to this day that we're unsure of and that stand up so well that makes you wonder, you know, it, could you be missing out on something like that mm-hmm. still happening today? And that's hard to tell. Dovetailing with that is the idea it had to have been like this. De Hinden set up his life so that he gets a phone call and he's able mm-hmm. to either get on a plane or get in a truck and go to where these things happened. And evidently, no one there's you know, there's yeah. no work that's gonna miss him. His family pays the price. You know, DeHinden does get married, have a son, and very famously, you know, his wife reaches a point where she says, It's either us, this family, or Sasquatch, and we know that he chose the hunt for Bigfoot mm-hmm. instead. And that was that's how his life was arranged around that. That was his number mm-hmm. one. That's his absolute priority. And it's it's shocking on one hand, in a way. I mean mm-hmm. that 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 would be what he does. Um, you know, not to be psychologist about it, but given his upbringing, it just seemed like he needed that one thing to hang on to, and that was it. Ended up being the, the Sasquatch search. So yeah, so even at the same time that Patterson Gimlin like rocks his world, he recognizes the value of it. He's shrewd and and really smart and recognizes Patterson's not going to get a million dollars for this. No one's mm-hmm. dangling that in front of him. That might be different today. That's a yeah. major way in which Patterson Gimlin, that whole experience in 67 versus today, I think would be entirely different. So it's just the wrong place, wrong mm-hmm. time in a certain way. But Bottom line here is that John Green and Renee DeHinden go in together to buy the Canadian rights to show the Patterson-Gimlin film theatrically. And then DeHinden goes on the road four-walling mm-hmm. the Patterson-Gimlin film and then lecturing about his Bigfoot exploits. So that, too, doesn't really get him anywhere. In the book itself, it said it. He never did better than breaking even. Oh, so like he went on the that road. That sounds so cool. It does sound cool. And the thing that I immediately thought of is that we does... should take small town monsters <laughs> on the road and we should lecture it. Yeah. Guys, we're going. <laughs> we'll lecture and we'll show Seth's movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, an idea. the thing I actually thought of Sorry. was does it exist anywhere where people wrote down like tonight we went to the local movie theater mm-hmm. and heard this guy named Renee de Hinden. He showed us this film and we heard him speak about that. I, I, I don't know that those don't yeah. or do exist. It'd be interesting to see if they do just to get somebody's yeah. like unvarnished opinion on how that experience. Yeah. Was. Yeah. For walling STM would be kind of fun. I We're think. taking it on the road guys. <laughs> That's what the Kickstarter's actually right. been for. <laughs> big. Look for yeah. Renee DeHinden inspired um, sweep through yep. Canada. We should do yeah, it, Canada. It would, well, yeah, it's if, a Canadian if we, tour. If we broke even, then there we go. It. We'll just get to BC that way. <laughs> I think we have an idea. <laughs> Cue rock music. <laughs> yeah. So, um, fast forwarding through massive portions of DeHinden's life. I mean, it all sort of, he, he runs into brick walls in this Bosberg experience. 
Uh, that's starting in November 69. Uh, the Bosberg tracks are found. If, uh, most of you are probably aware of the Bosberg experience, but if you're not, the, the, the thing that was distinctive about the Bosberg tracks that were found, and again, over a thousand of them, were found in one track line alone, was that one of the, the feet appeared to be deformed and disfigured, uh, either congenitally or as a result of some accident, like step, stepping in a trap or something, but that left consistent deformed uh, tracks. And that got the attention of all the usual suspects. Um, what happens then is that over starting in November 69, going into January of 1970, you have people like Rene de Hinden, Roy Fardell, Roger St. Hilaire, and then Roger Patterson and his buddy Dennis Jensen show up as well. And at first, they're all working together to try and come to some conclusion about Bosberg de Hinden. I know it's hard to believe, but has his doubts about the Bosberg tracks, and he's convinced that where they appear and when is highly suspicious. They all seem to appear near the town dump. They all seem to appear in very um, in in areas where they would be easily discovered. In one case, they appear like less than fifteen hours after fresh snowfall. So, you know, it's just all yeah. these things that DeHinden was like, wait a minute. And yet at the same time, he was trapped in this need to know. Mm -hmm. So all that is to say, they're still on the Bosberg hunt when a guy named Joe Metlow shows up in the place where, um, in fact, let me backtrack and say, either DeHinden got bored with Bosberg or he just thought, you know, I've got this Patterson-Gimlin film. I want to stay on this. So he goes back and is showing the movie places. These other guys are in the camp. So like Fardell, St. Hilaire are representing DeHinden, mm -hmm. essentially. Patterson and Jensen are there. So Joe Metlow shows up with this other guy named Bill Streeter. I'm not even sure what he was doing there. But Metlow claims to have a Sasquatch. Like, have one? Have a like live a Sasquatch, and he's sold it already. But he just wanted these other Sasquatch hunters to know. Immediately, Jensen, who is Roger Patterson's associate, counteroffers and says, we'll give you more than whatever you're getting right now. Take us to your Sasquatch. Thus ensues this great con job on the part of Metlow, who's playing these two sides against one another because in the background of Patterson and Jensen is Ohio's own Tom Page, who has Patterson on retainer. He's funding Patterson's search. Mm -hmm. Page tells him, whatever it takes, get the creature. Mm -hmm. Well, at a certain point, this, this reaches, and here's this is where the fracture begins. Patterson and Jensen make the deal on Page's behalf with Metlow, and they say, let's leave St. Hilaire and Fardell out of this, which is a way of saying, mm -hmm. let's leave Rene de Hinden out of this. And then you'd have to read the book, but it, go, it is absolutely insane to the point where Metlow is saying, okay, I've got the Bigfoot. I've somehow got it trapped in this mine shaft. And I'll tell you about where it is. And you guys go. And they're like racing. The two teams are racing on snowmobiles. In one case, it's a helicopter versus a plane. And they're all trying to get to the Sasquatch that Metlow claims to have. He doesn't have any Sasquatch. He never did. John Green got involved on evidently the Patterson side of things. And that's where the rift be begins mm. really between DeHinden and John Green, which is really sad. Yeah. Because those guys were like the ultimate pair. Uh, and of the, the great four horsemen, you know, they're the ones who work together the best, the longest. But that's the situation where 
the break starts to happen. And mm -hmm. it's not as if they never speak ever again. They do, but it's just not the same. And it, I think that whole experience drove DeHinden into a more trust no one sort yeah. of mentality. And towards later in life, he really enjoyed sort of that elder spokesman status among Bigfooters. But as you see in the movie, that didn't yeah. tame his behavior at all. Yeah, if you want to see older Rene DeHinden just yell at people, check out um, Journey Towards Squatchdom. And I don't know if that's available digitally anywhere or whatnot. But yeah. Yeah, it's just hearing that makes me think about the fact that um, all of this, sort of the the, the original wave of um, Sasquatch research is probably way cooler than we even imagined. I mean, I think yeah. we all think of it fondly, but the yeah. fact that you have things like snowmobile races mm -hmm. and like people sort of at the forefront of all this and showing people the Patterson Gimlin film for the first time at you know to scientists and to newspaper people and sort of being there for all that and sort of being on the forefront of this discovery and of this search mm -hmm. and of the journey. <laughs> what's the first one called what's is it the search no it's the search and the first on the trail of bigfoot legend the legend and the legend <laughs> anyways to yeah. be on the forefront of all this is so cool mm -hmm. and it's like probably you know you have to dig into the books to actually see it but it's like way more interesting than we may mm -hmm. think yeah and motivated by so many things mm -hmm. like everything from pure discovery to how can we leverage this to the best yeah. possible financial gain and you know not not like not looking askance at that either i mean that was just a, a motivating force for some of these guys involved and um yeah just that like the bidding war mm -hmm. so it's just an incredible story so i guess i'll share one more account kind of to take us out mm -hmm. Because it, it it goes along with what you're saying about how amazing that era really was, and put yourself in this situation if you as you hear this. This is just I love everything about this last story. One intriguing story was aired on radio station CKNW in May of 1969. The host was Jack Webster, a former city editor of the Vancouver Sun and then the acknowledged king of the open line shows. In the studio were DeHinden, Green, and Jack Wilson, a partner in the Powder Mountain Development Corporation, a company concerned with developing ski centers. And there was a veteran Vancouver photographer, John Helsermanis. According to Wilson, his partner, Teddy Osborne, had been viewing potential skiing sites on Powder Mountain, about 65 miles north of Vancouver, and a dozen or so miles in from where Bill Taylor, the highway's foreman, saw a creature on the Squamish Highway. Osborne was in a helicopter, flying fairly low, when he saw marks in the snow that puzzled him. He was an experienced bushman, but could not recall having ever seen anything resembling what lay before, below him. He returned and described what he had seen. The following day, Wilson and Helsermanus took the helicopter and went to inspect. They found at a height of 4,800 feet on the mountainside in a spot where it's quite possible that man had never stepped before, tracks that were 14 inches long and 7 inches wide. Later, photographs of the tracks taken by Halsermanus would be matched against Bigfoot tracks from California and would be found to be almost identical. If we were to keep under consideration the scientist's theory of a gigantic hoax, we should also consider not only the distance from Powder Mountain to Northern California, as the crow flies, it is something more than 700 miles to Sacramento, but also the immense problems involved in making a set of tracks along the edge of a glacier, as these were, that run for five miles and offer no evidence on either side of them that would point to them having been manufactured. The idea of a hoax becomes much more unreasonable than the idea of a giant biped on the loose. And there's more details that follow, such as... Uh, Whatever made the tracks seem to pick off spruce buds off of the trees, eat them, and throw the husks, just like drop them. And they were embedded in these footprints like it had dropped them and stepped on them as it was walking along. Mm -hmm. And so I just love that 
visual the concept of those guys sitting there in a radio station taking questions and answers yeah. you know on the air and that too was happening mm -hmm. during the late 60s early 70s i believe i mean i have no clue if that's the same radio show but that's on our um idaho episode our montana episode i i made mention of the fact they were once doing a radio show together so mm -hmm. maybe that was the very one mm -hmm. but yeah that's just such an interesting idea and the idea that i don't know in my mind skepticism is with skepticism there's the idea of it being a hoax is not one that's prevalent in my mind mm -hmm. if i'm being honest i mean people lying is certainly something that i think is a possibility but the idea that someone is making things up to seem as if it was bigfoot is probably not the most frequent thing in in cases like tracks and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, it's something that's an option, but as you sort of forget in today's day and age that that's a way that people come to it from, or at least I do, mm -hmm. that's like, this is people making it up to seem like there's a Bigfoot. And when you're talking about something that's five miles long and there's not right. a single piece of evidence, like, could you imagine the pressure of being that hoaxer? Like, yeah, it's that's crazy. There is a case in the book, Sasquatch Bigfoot, that DeHinden got pulled into this actual hoax case where the idea was not even really to convince science that there's something to the Bigfoot legend. It was just to mess with people and mm -hmm. have fun. Uh, to the degree that, you know, what it was, it all centered around like a tour bus driver who decided um, they had a setup where there was like a truck that appeared to be having problems. Somebody was stationed there so that when the bus went by, they radioed their buddy in the woods who was dressed up in a gorilla costume to run across the road. And the thing that nobody counted on, evidently, was that you know as the, the bus driver pulled over to the side of the road and like made a big deal over the fact that, oh, there goes a Sasquatch, somebody got off the bus and chased after it. And I don't think that they had uh, thought it through to that degree. Um, so anyway, the weird angle of the whole story is that the witness who took off after the apparent Sasquatch ended up reporting something that looked nothing like what this guy in the suit looked like, but fit much more of a classic Sasquatch description. And that baffled everybody. Because it just mm -hmm. it raised all sorts of weird questions, including was there actually a Sasquatch there, coincidentally, at the same location that these college buddies had pulled yeah. this big hoax on everyone. And, you know, they went on, I think it was another radio show, and admitted what they had done. DeHinden was, of course, boots on the ground investigating that as about as soon as you possibly could, as we've discussed. And while he sniffed out very quickly the fact that this was a hoax, you know, it bothered him deeply that the eyewitness had reported what he had. Because at that point, DeHinden had a very clear sense of what an actual Sasquatch mm -hmm. uh, would, would look like. And it was not a six and a half foot tall guy in a bulky or saggy gorilla costume. It was the classic description that I think everybody is pretty much familiar with at this point. So... He was left with grappling, you know, did this guy, um, is that what he really saw? Was there one mm -hmm. really there? Or was he conflating that in his mind, kind of filling in the gaps, thinking that's what he was supposed to say kind of in the moment yeah. or, or what and what he was dealing with. So DeHinden had his share of dealing with hoaxes as well and would typically call that out, you know, as soon as he had come to a conclusion. Yeah, it really reminds you how bad people are at observing things. And that's something that's very difficult with this whole phenomenon is mm -hmm. you really can't trust eyewitnesses as much as you think you can. Mm -hmm. As sad as it's not even that people are lying, it's just that people are bad at observing things. Sure. Especially under, you know, stress and short amount of time right. and all that. Just as simply as my, you know, as simple as how tall is something mm -hmm. with just a couple seconds to estimate. Yeah. So I think a good way to end the show would be with Renee DeHinden's own words. And this comes at the way end of um, Sasquatch Bigfoot. And it says, it's quoting Renee, and it says, The search for Sasquatch is a bit like looking for the Holy Grail, except that is performed by...
by very unholy people. And I, I like that quote a lot. And I think it rings true um, that this very interesting romantic search, but the people involved are sometimes special. It's special, but very <laughs> nicely. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll close on that. Uh, check out this in any way you can look it up. Um, and then Sasquatch Bigfoot is such a good book. Definitely. Um, leave us a like subscribe, join, join the channel. If you want us to hear us talk about this more, I'm sure there's stuff this episode that I cut out. So if you want to hear us talk more about this, become a channel member, um, follow us on social media, probably most active on Instagram at, at STM underscore broadcasting underscore network. All that stuff's down in the description. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for watching.